So if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10, and I'm going to get my glasses. We'll be reading verses 1 to 27. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men, The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, cutting them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. And when Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear. Don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua 
in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave, bring, bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward, placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. Thank you uh, so much, Gareth. Um, let me add my welcome to Gareth. I'm Chris Evans, assistant pastor here. If, if you're visiting or haven't met you um, before, um, just before we, we dive into the passage, just want to briefly flag up Amanda mentioned earlier, um, Andrew and, and Molly, our ministry trainees, um, it is their last Sunday um, with us. So if you do get a chance to just, you know, say a little goodbye, a thank you, um, please do. I'm just going to say a quick prayer um, for them now, and then we're going to um, dive in. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, Andrew and Molly and for uh, the service that they have been to us as a church family, the blessing and the encouragement it's been to have them with us um, over the last year. Thank you for how they've grown. Uh, thank you um, for uh, the ways they are such a blessing here. And we pray that all that they have learned, they would take with them um, to the churches where they uh, will be settling. Uh, please provide for them in the ways that they need with, with work and accommodation and, and funding in in the years ahead, um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, oh, I should pray for the sermon as well. That's very important. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this passage. It is, um, there are some hard things in here, and we pray that uh, your spirit would be at work in our hearts, um, preparing us um, to hear what you are teaching us through situations that feel very far away and very uh, foreign. We thank you that your words are, are, are true uh, for, for all eternity. And so uh, we know that there is treasure in here. And we pray that you would um, be with us now and, and help us uh, to see the hope that this calls us to. Amen. Rooted, it's great to have you with us. Um, quick question um, for you. A couple of questions. Jot these down. Um, firstly, um, what is the defeat of these kings a picture of? What is the defeat of these kings a picture of? And then another question, maybe you can chat about this afterwards. Uh, how does this passage encourage you uh, when you see God's kingdom opposed? How might this passage encourage you when you see God's kingdom opposed? Great. Well, I'm actually going to start with, with that question. <laughs> how, how do you feel? when you see opposition to God's kingdom. Um, Ewan prayed earlier for Burkina Faso. Christians there uh, have a hard time following the Lord Jesus. They face a lot of different persecutions and difficulties. Uh, maybe you know about China. In 2019, um, state-controlled churches, they had um, an order 
to remove the Ten Commandments from displays and to replace them with Communist Party quotes. Uh, and an article actually in The Guardian said, some churches that refused to obey uh, were shut down and other congregations were told their members would be blacklisted, uh, which means travel, education, employment options for Christians would be restricted by the authorities. How do you feel when you see opposition to God's kingdom? Uh, maybe close to home in the UK, a few months back, um, a lecturer at a Bible college in the north of England uh, was sacked after some comments on social media expressing how much our culture was aggressively shaping the church's view on sexuality, uh, shaping our view on that much more than scripture. Rooted, you guys are in. Uh, what is it like at school? Perhaps it is a hard place to be a Christian. Perhaps you know opposition there. Maybe personally we've experienced pushback for following the Lord Jesus. But opposition to God's kingdom isn't just out there in the world. Um, it's also in our hearts, isn't it? Um, we face a kind of threat to God's rule in our lives. Every, every time we're tempted to sin, to give in to addiction, or enduring trials of chronic illness, decaying bodies, or minds that are troubled. These aren't just physical, but spiritual battles too. How do you feel? Discouraged? Disheartened? Defeatist? Maybe it is very easy to doubt God's goodness and power in our world and in our lives. Well, in Joshua, we've seen that God is bringing about his kingdom in the land of Canaan. But it's not just a story that's set there. No, this bringing God's kingdom about is a picture of the kingdom he will one day bring about on the whole earth. And how God responds to opposition here has something to teach us and encourage us about how he will one day respond to all opposition. See, the battle isn't just about Israel versus Canaan, but it's for the whole heart and hearts and minds of all people. This is about the victory of God over Satan, the victory of good over evil. It's a passage about every opposition that God's people go through and the hope that we have to cling onto in the face of that discouragement, that defeatism. But just before we look at chapter 10, we must remember God's kingdom is coming in Canaan, but we've seen two responses already from the people who live there. Chapter 2, we had Rahab. Rahab sees that the Lord's kingdom is coming and she helps the spies and asks for mercy and wonderfully she's brought into God's family. Last week, chapter 9, we saw Gibeon and they were desperate to be part of God's family, so much that they, that they pulled a few fast ones on Israel in the process. And remembering those people is important. God's kingdom is coming to Canaan, but the nation's they do have an opportunity to respond and be included, to ask for mercy. But as we've gone through Joshua so far, bubbling away in the background, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, you can drop that down, chapter 9, verse 1, uh, we have these murmurings of other responses to God's kingdom. And they come into focus here. 
and it is a response of rebellion and fear. So, as we come to chapter 10, what can we learn about facing opposition to God's kingdom? Well, three things uh, for us to remember. The firstly is remember who fights for you. Remember who fights for you. Have a look at verses uh, 1 to 5. As this chapter begins, the stakes go up for Israel. We're introduced to this king, Adonai Zedek, uh, the king of Jerusalem in verse 1. And he's heard two bits of troubling news. Firstly, the Israelites had a victory at Ai. That was in chapter 8. And secondly, they've made a treaty with Gibeon. That was chapter 9. Well, what's, what's the problem here? Well, Ai is city number two to fall after Jerusalem, and Gibeon, we're told in verse two, was a big and important city with good fighters. The dominoes are starting to fall in Canaan. Israel are gaining a stronghold in the region, and so this king, Adonai Zedek, what can he do? He calls for a coalition. He asks the kings of Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, verse four, come up, help me to attack Gibeon because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Now, understandably, Gibeon aren't that keen on being surrounded by these five kings and their armies as they come up in verse 5, and so they send word for help, verse 6, to Israel. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Well, how do you think Israel will respond? We know what's going to happen, but just think for a moment. Who are Gibeon to Israel? What has just happened? Gibeon, they're the lot who tricked Israel. If you were Israel, these five armies coming around Gibeon might sound like the ideal solution to these guys who've just latched onto you. But the answer is obvious to Joshua. God is a covenant-keeping God, and so Israel are to be a covenant-keeping people. Verse 7, the Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And God is wonderfully kind here. As they go on their way, do you see verse 8? He reassures them of victory. Do not be afraid of them. Humanly speaking, there is every reason to fear. The numbers are vast, the terrain is unknown, and they're traveling through the night. Do you see verse 9? They start the battle with sleepy eyes and aching legs. But God has promised them, verse 8, I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. That is extraordinary. Not one. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? But it's possible because God doesn't wait on the sidelines. He fights for his people. We see that all through the next few verses. Firstly, verse 10, he's the one who brings fear. Do you see? The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. Secondly, he's sovereign over the whole situation, the terrain. Israel pursued them along a road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekar and Makeda. They've got the, the higher ground as they go down. Thirdly, he arranges, do you see, some rather special weather, verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekar, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. 
This is the original targeted missile right here. But it's not new. Remember back in Exodus, the plagues? The hail didn't land on the Israelites, but it landed on Egypt. This is the same God fighting for his people. You see verse 12, we see God is in control still. The Lord gave them over to Israel. And finally, we'll think about this more in our second point. God even moves heaven and earth. In verses 12 to 14, the sun stays still. And we're told, verse 14, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now, I don't know about you, if you're a sporting person, I'm not hugely sporty, um, but occasionally in team sports, you get this one player who changes everything, don't you? Um, Perhaps you grew up playing rugby, you'll know the kind of person that I mean, maybe you're only 13 years old, um, but there's one guy who technically, they're in your year group, but they look like they could grow a beard in about five hours, they don't need any of that fake ID, they're on your team, you know that the opposition doesn't stand a chance. Um, Sophie plays netball, and um, she says that, that they, ha- they often have players substituting in for other teams in their league. And if, if you're playing netball, if you're a really tall shooter, um, that is a good thing. Because the defenders, they, they can't do anything to get around you. And there's this one girl that, you know, if you're looking for a spare player, that's who you want. Because once she's on your team, no one can stop. They just, they just go over the top of you. However kind of threatening the opposition might look, as soon as you remember that person is on your team, there is sort of steel in your step and fire in your belly. And I think that is the sense here. However overwhelming the force is, God is not just fighting with them, but for them. He is on their side. Now as Christians, our battle isn't so much played out on the battlefield of Canaan, but on the spiritual plane. Is played out in our hearts, in our minds, the desires that we have. The battle to endure physical trials, relational difficulties. So when we hear of opposition to God's kingdom out there, when we encounter it for ourselves, one thing Joshua 10 teaches us is we must remember who fights for us. If you are to encounter opposition for your faith, if you are feeling under spiritual attack, don't leave this morning without knowing that God fights for you. Romans 8.31 tells us this, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul, who's writing, he knows actually lots of things can be against you, can't they? But the deeper sense is that however great the opposition, if God is for us, then nothing can stand against us. God plus nothing is the greatest army in existence. Now, unlike Israel, our battle isn't fought with sword and shield. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. 
we are given impenetrable armor. The armor that we put on is the truth of the gospel. God's truth, his righteousness given to us. Faith in Christ, salvation. We're not putting on tactics or techniques, but stepping in to the safety and the hope of the gospel. And as God gives us himself, he gives us the greatest armor we could hope for. But part of the battle is remembering, remembering who fights for us. I love the song we just sang, Christ is Mine Forevermore, because it helps us to remember that. Um, I don't know if you spotted, the first half of each verse is something about the, the battle, something about the opposition that we encounter maybe day by day. But the second half always points us to the difference Christ makes. Here's an example. Um, one of the verses talks about, through the valley I must travel, where I see no earthly good, where it feels like everything is lost. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and strength in time of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Why? Because Christ completes his work in me. Or what about this verse? Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way, one with Christ. I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. Feels overwhelming. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. How should we respond when we see, when we feel God's kingdom opposed, firstly, remember who fights for you. But secondly, remember who prays for you. Have a look down at verse 12. We're not exactly told when this incident, when this kind of speaking to the sun happens. It just says, just sometime on the day. Um, it probably wasn't right at the end. These verses, we think, probably come at the end because they're the most extraordinary thing uh, that happens. Joshua said, it says, to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. In the presence of Israel, he asks for the solar system to stand still. Now, I don't know about you, I think most people going to try this out, probably want to do it in private, not with kind of thousands of people around you. you know, there'd be no shame if it didn't happen, but, but not Joshua. He says, I'm going to pray this, get everybody here, all the fighting men. And what happens? Verse 13, so the sun stood still, the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. That is written in the book of Joshua. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. And what do we think? Well, gosh, yes, indeed, never a day like that, never. But did you spot verse 14? It's not the earth and heaven stopping, which is actually described as the most stunning thing that happened here. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day, verse 14, when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. The surprise is that God did what Joshua asked. Now we might think God has listened to other people in the Bible before, hasn't he? What about Abraham and Lot? What about Moses on behalf of the people at Mount Sinai? What is so special here? 
But what I think we have in Joshua is someone who is so aligned with God's heart and purposes, so confident in, in God's power, in, in the relationship that he has with the Lord and God's promises, that he can speak for something extraordinary to happen. But why does he ask for this? Well, here's my best, my best guess, uh, with thanks to uh, a guy called Rob Dodson, who uh, gave a helpful explanation of this. I think Joshua realizes in this battle, there is no way for them to chase down and defeat this army without more hours of daylight in the day. Now, we easily take light for granted, don't we, today? Technology, like sort of night goggles and things like that, they, they can kind of make a difference. But, but here, back in this time, once night fell, it would be hard for that battle to continue in the same sort of intensity. So we have a problem, because God's promised to give them into, into Israel's hands, but it seems like the only way this can happen for sure is, is to get it all done in the light before people can scatter off. They need a longer day. So what's going to budge? God's promise that they will be brought into Israel's hands, or the movement of the stars and the earth to give them the time to do it? Well, Joshua is so sure of God's promises, he knows it is no contest. And so he speaks, do you see, directly to the sun and the moon. Sun, moon. And God answers Joshua's prayer. Amazingly. Not because he's twisting God's thumbs, but because this enables God's purposes to be brought about. And God's plans are, well, he will do anything to bring them about. And so moving heaven and earth, well, that's nothing. If this is how God responds to Joshua's prayer, then when we face opposition, when we are feeling defeatist and doubting, how much more confident can we be that he will answer the prayers of our leader, the Lord Jesus himself? When they were fighting, Israel's confidence, they could see their leader praying. They would have been bolstered by him praying and knowing that God would answer his prayer. When we are facing opposition, remember who prays for us. Jesus is right now at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And just like the Lord moved heaven and earth for Joshua, he will move heaven and earth to make sure that Jesus' prayers are answered too. But just what is Jesus praying for us? Well, here's just a couple of prayers. John 17 is one of the most marvelous chapters in the Bible, full of a prayer from Jesus to his Father. And here are two prayers in that chapter. Verse 11, Jesus is praying for his followers. Protect them by the power of your name. Verse 15, protect them from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus is praying that for each one of us right now. Isn't that amazing? And the Lord will answer the prayers of his son. I wonder how you feel to know that each one of us will be kept going and protected That no opposition, persecution, suffering, sin, circumstance, or even death itself 
can stop God's children getting safely home because God will answer the prayers of his son. Discouragement often comes from either looking inwards at ourselves or looking outwards at a, at a situation we find ourselves in or see others in. But here we're told, don't look in or out, but look up. Remember who prays for you. And can I just say, especially if you are someone who is finding it really hard to pray at the moment, perhaps it feels like your prayers are falling on deaf ears and that the answer is never uh, what you want. Joshua 10 reminds us there is someone who is praying for us even when we struggle to pray for ourselves. Isn't that an amazing kindness of the Lord? And it reminds us that our Heavenly Father can move heaven and earth to answer such prayers. So when God's kingdom is being opposed, firstly, remember who fights for you. Secondly, remember who prays for you, Christ, our great high priest. And thirdly, remember who wins for you. The first 15 verses, they tell us a lot about this fight that is going on. But verses 16 to 27 focus on the victory. The kings are found in a cave, verse 16, and a a stone is rolled over and a guard placed on it whilst they they head off and deal with the remaining uh, fighting men. Now that could have been that. Uh, They could have just left the stone on the cave. What would have happened? Well, they would have starved. They would have been kind of defeated. End of story. But Joshua does something far more dramatic, doesn't he? And if we're honest, this, this feels, quite, feels quite hard to read at times, doesn't it? And so our question has to be, why, why do it this way? What does he do? Well, verse 22, he says, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought out the five kings of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, do you see just there, he, he's making sure everyone who's going to be involved in the fighting is there. You all need to be here when these guys come out of the cave. What does he say? Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they come forward and they put their feet on their necks. And as their feet are on their necks, Joshua says to, to all the fighting men around him, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You can almost imagine him pointing down. Don't be be strong and courageous. This, probably pointing down, this is what the Lord will do to all the enemies that you are going to fight. And then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. We're told uh, the passage goes on that they're not uh, left hanging there. They're taken down, thrown into a cave. The cave that they had hidden, that was their refuge, becomes their tomb. And they put large stones against the mouth of the cave. And we're told that that stone is there uh, to this day. Well, why does it happen this way? Why not just leave them in the cave? Why go about this whole feet on necks malarkey? Well, I think it is to strengthen them with a picture and a promise of how every other fight ahead of them will end. 
This is a picture of how every other battle will go. Joshua is effectively saying, what is going on here, what you are doing now, will happen down the line. God will do this very thing to all of your enemies. He's saying that the God who fights for you is also the God who wins for you. When they're walking through the night and unsure how the next battle is going to go, this is the image that God wants them to have in their mind's eye. The enemies subjugated, under their feet. These are the words that he wants ringing in their ears. Be strong and courageous. And we didn't read the second half of chapter 10, but as you go through the rest of chapter 10, 11, and 12, we get sort of summaries of every other battle. And it's exactly what happens. The whole region is subdued. And that opposition is brought under Israel's feet. The God who fights for them is the God who wins for them. Now, if you're um, a sports fan, most of you uh, probably rather watch a, a race or a match uh, without knowing the ending. Um, there's been many a kind of church meeting, a carol service or Zoom meeting where the results of a match are kind of an embargo area. Don't, don't mention it so that people can watch it on replay when they get home. Now, it's the same with films and books, isn't it? Typically, we'd rather not know the ending. Um, part of the joy is the sort of ups and downs that you're taken on. Um, funnily enough, some people, some people do like going in with their eyes open. You know who you are. Um, some of you like to just check what the ending is. It sort of helps you relax a bit. Um, Sophie, my wife, isn't a big fan of tension. Um, so if we're watching something that's getting a bit tense, she likes me to reassure her that the ending is happy, that this character is not going to die. Um, but sometimes, I don't know if you've done it, sometimes there is joy in watching, uh, watching a, a sports final when you've been told the results, um, especially if it's the one that you want. Um, you you kind of get to experience all the ups and downs, the penalties, the sending off, the, you know, or if it's a film, the near-death car chase or the kidnapping, whatever's going on. You get to experience it all, but you can do it with this sense of assurance. Oh, okay, this looks really bad, but... But you know what? I know, I know it's going to end 5-1. Or I know, that, I know that he's going to get rescued at the end of the film. And I think there's something of that going on here for Israel and the defeat of these kings. They are going to go through years of skirmishes to bring God's kingdom about in Canaan. And when it feels overwhelming, they are to remember, we, we know how this ends. We've been told how this ends. The ending has already been decided. Because the one who fights for them is the God who wins for them. But what about us now? How do we pray for brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso, in China, when the Bible is being rewritten? How do we support Christian teachers when institutions might threaten to fire them for holding particular biblical views? How does this encourage us to face sort of spiritual attack for sharing our faith or, or, or the, the battle against sin day by day. Because the evidence in front of us and the feeling can often be that Jesus has lost or that, or that he's in the process of losing. It feels like we're halfway through the match and there is no hope. But wonderfully, we too have been 
given a a picture and a promise of the ending of the story. When the battle is raging and God's kingdom seems enveloped in darkness, we have been given somewhere to look as well. Not five kings pinned down, but one king, crucified, risen, and ascended. On the cross, we're told in in Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He defeated the evil one. In his resurrection, he demonstrates power over the grave, and in his ascension at the right hand of God, he is seated above every ruler and authority. And where are his enemies? Well, in Acts 2, Peter quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies, where? Under his feet. These five kings brought under Israel's feet are a picture of where the final victory in Christ is heading. One day, all opposition, all spiritual forces of evil, all rebellion will be under Christ's feet. And not just his, but the church's. Ours too. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It is his victory, but we share in it. I mean, Joshua, we see... God's rule is being brought to a particular place. But the plan, just like Eden, was that this rule would be known across the whole earth. And the promise is that one day all evil and rebellion will be brought to an end. The offspring of Eve would conquer the offspring of the serpent. One day. But one day can often feel far off, can't it? And for now, God's rule and rebellion against God's rule they can coexist in, in a sense. But the promise of victory is that one day God won't let a rebellious world rebel forever. We remember who fights for us, who prays for us, and who wins for us. One day, we, we often talk about Jesus' compassion, his gentleness, his lowliness, and all those things are wonderfully true. But Jesus is also pictured in Revelation as a military warrior with justice who commands the armies of heaven with a a, a sword in his mouth, with a robe, king of kings and lord of lords. The fact that rebellion will one day be judged by Christ and every wrong held accountable is a hard thing, but it must be a good thing and a right thing. But as we close, I think it is right that we feel both sobered and encouraged by this victory. It's sobering, well firstly, because each of us know, apart from God's grace in our hearts, well where are we? We are full of rebellion, aren't we? Which means we deserve exactly what the kings get in this passage. And it's sobering because we know that that is also true for friends and family too. And just like this rebellion in Canaan uh, wouldn't last forever, we know that Jesus won't let rebellion happen forever too. And that is hard to talk about. 
but it is a reality check we need. We're told God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that he desires all to come to repentance. And so we must pray, we must speak. Pray that just like Rahab and the Gibeonites turned to the Lord, many would turn to him. Because however sobering it is, there is still hope for rebellious hearts. Although Jesus will not let a rebellious world rebel forever, God acted in Christ to overcome our rebellion. Jesus experienced the fate of our rebellion in our place. He was killed like the kings. He was hung on a tree like they were. He was thrown into a tomb. But unlike the tomb in our reading, where the stones still stood to this day, three days later, the angel rolled the stone away, and Jesus walked out victorious. It is sobering, but there is hope for rebellious hearts. But it's also encouraging, isn't it? Because when we see brothers and sisters trampled around the world, when it feels like God's kingdom is on the back foot and shrinking, we know how it ends. We know that he will bring everything under Jesus' feet. He wins, and we will win with him. So we remember who fights for us, remember who prays for us, and who wins for us. And together, we press on. Let's take a moment to reflect, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for putting passages like this in your word that force us to think about hard things but important and eternal things. And Father, we praise you that you give us comforts and encouragement when it feels like the battle is oh so hard, when it feels uh, as if your kingdom is shrinking and we struggle to believe that you will sustain us. We thank you that you fight for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who prays for us. And we praise you that because you sent your son, our rebellion can be forgiven and we can be restored. And we can press on day by day knowing that the end is victory. Lord, we thank you so much for that glorious hope. In Jesus' name, amen.